This is BTS with CTV behind the scenes, behind the stories we bring you from the CTV Vancouver newsroom. My name is Penny Dalfoss and I'll be your guide behind the curtain, which takes us to the battle between journalists and spin doctors. Now more than ever, a reporter trying to get an interview and answers to important questions has to wade through well-staffed public relations departments intent on controlling the messages for their organization. It didn't meet our guidelines. Which part of the guidelines? The compatibility with the airport's advertising guidelines. Spokespeople stay within the message box to control the headlines and coverage as much as possible with carefully chosen and repetitive wording. Is this a failure by the school to not tell students soon enough? I can tell you that the security and the safety of our students is, um, is a primary concern for us. How come students haven't known anything? I can tell you that, that they are a primary concern to us. So if you are looking to improve, can you admit that there was a mistake made taking so long to tell students? I can tell you that we will look to... The most well-known example is the old soundbite standby of politicians everywhere. On time, on budget. We are on time and on budget. This project will be on time and on budget. Well, we're pleased that it is on time, it is on budget. With former BC Premier Gordon Campbell famously keeping a stranglehold on the phrase to control the media and the message around a multi-million dollar convention centre. So it's going to be on time, on budget. And, and there's going to be lots of BC, wouldn't it? And if it's not? It's going to be on time, on budget. And if it's not? It's going to be. I want to bring in John Woodward now. We sit together, we work together, but this is the first time you've been on the pod, so welcome to BTS with CTV. Thanks very much for having me. Now, you were working on a story recently where you encountered the message box in a really memorable way, but uh, paint us a picture. What was the story that you were working on, and, and when did you run into trouble? Yeah, it was meant to be a really simple story. A contact of mine had pointed out to me that an, a company that was trying to get discounts or, or um, remedies for passengers who'd been bumped on, on a flight was trying to get their ad in the Vancouver airport where you'd think the passengers would be. And they got rejected. And we thought, that's a funny thing. Why would the airport reject an ad from a company trying to help passengers? What's going on? So that was in the morning. Uh, emailed down to the airport, asked them to provide somebody to answer questions. And within a few minutes, we were on our way. It was a, seemed like something that we would do any other day. Uh, got there and talked to uh, met a VP there whose name was Scott Norris who's uh, VP commercial development there and it started like any other interview just tell me what's going on but within a few seconds it went completely off the rails uh, in this case uh, the flight claim advertising proposal didn't meet our advertising guidelines and what are the guidelines well those guidelines are based on on compatibility with the airport mutual respect and understanding of all the airport users. As you can imagine, there's a great variety of users at the airport, from passengers to businesses, that we, we try and accommodate. And what part of the ads didn't meet that? Which part of that framework? Well, the, the part that we were not comfortable with, that it just didn't meet our overall objectives for advertising in the airport. We receive a large number from various different organizations. And in this case, it just didn't meet our advertising guidelines. The simple questions that we had were not answered. And uh, instead of just getting, you know, the question was, why didn't you allow the ad? And the answer was, uh, it didn't meet our guidelines. Well, which guidelines? Well, we respect, we want users to be respected. Which users were disrespected? Well, we want the ad to meet our guidelines. And it just went around in circles. In this case, um, we, we were not, we believed it wasn't in alignment with the airport's principles on advertising. Specifically, how? 
Well, we're interested in creating a, a great experience for British Columbians in terms of the passenger experience at the airport. Um, YVR uh, in recent years has been voted the best airport in North America uh, for, from the passenger group. That's a vote of confidence from our passengers uh, that we receive uh, you know, through email and, and, and uh, online every day. So what specifically was the problem with that? It didn't meet our guidelines. Which part of the guidelines? The compatibility with the airport's advertising guidelines. To the point where, you know, I, I actually admitted to Scott, I said, I'm swimming here. I have no idea what you're, uh, what you're telling me here. I mean, I, I'm, I'm kind of swimming here. I still don't know why you've denied the ad. Uh, for, for business reasons and because it didn't meet uh, the, the airport's advertising guidelines. What communication did you have with the airlines about this? I think we're just going to uh, wrap it up right now. Thank you. So just, you're, you're stopping the interview in mid-question. Sorry. I you're, you're, you guys are stopping this. I think he's provided you the, the answer, yeah. I found it to be such a head-scratcher of an interview because he could have just come out and said, we see a conflict here between what they're trying to accomplish and the airlines. He, he could have just, you know, come out with an answer that would have been understandable to someone, whether or not you have a business background, it would have been reasonable, uh, you know, a $20,000 contract with this company versus goodwill with the airlines. You can see where they would make that decision, but he didn't want to come out and, and give a reasonable answer. It was just this discussion, and it, it was such a weird circle between guidelines and then compatibility and the customer experience, and it just went around and around, and it, it just didn't make a lot of sense. Yeah, I, I think you're right. The answer is dead simple. The answer is just we didn't want to run the ads because it would have Defend the airlines. I'm not going to say that there was any kind of money changing hands or a quid pro quo or a veto or anything the airlines got. I think the airport just looked at that ad and said, you know what, that, that that's not something we want to have. And if he'd said that, I probably would have had to say thanks for that and end the interview. But I think what, what he did, instead of simply answering the question in his capacity as an executive at the airport, he was listening to people uh, in the PR department who were saying, hold on, we want to spin this. We, wanna, we don't want to admit that we're, uh, we're limiting the, the free speech that the airport might legally have to actually encourage. Uh, that's a long story, but I, I think they, uh, the lawyers tell me they may have an obligation to, to have that free speech preserved in the airport. Um, we don't want to do that. We don't want to tread on that third rail. So let's just see if we can skirt around it a little bit. And they gave him a list of things to say. Those things included, we respect the passenger experience. We uh, have the ultimate discretion about the ads that are available to be aired in the airport. Um, we want to make sure that this ad does not disrespect any user groups. And that's it. Though that list of phrases did not include the actual answer to the only thing that interview was supposed to be about. And then it became about looking like he was avoiding answering a question. And I think that, that it, it's not just him and it's not just this particular example. It's so many organizations want to control the message that there's all this discussion about what are our talking points going to be and what's our messaging and there's all these you know buzzwords that they use and that's why I wanted to use this as an example but it happens a fair bit that we hear specific talking points two or three talking points because that's what they want to address yeah and a, and a talking point doesn't come out of nowhere it's a strategy and it's strategy because of a, one of the weaknesses that the media has and and a lot of the time that that weakness is the soundbite 
you only got a short amount of time to get that thing out, and there's only going to be a, you know, so much of time that we're going to devote to your clip. So if instead of answering the question, you just give the reporter the answer you want, at the end of the day, the reporter might just say, I, you know, I tried to get an answer, I couldn't, but at least I got something, I'll throw it out, out there. And so by exploiting that soundbike weakness of the media, they, they make it an art form, really, in some cases, to evade the question. Because if they can outlast you, they get their message out there. That, that leads to the question, well, as a media person, as a reporter, how do you handle that? I guess there's a lot of ways. I mean, you, you really you want to try and phrase your question in a way that's clear and simple. Um, you want to try and... Uh, put in front of your camera the people who are honest and who will answer the questions honestly because it's no service to the audience to, to put somebody in there who's not going to do that but in some cases you are presented with somebody who wants to, to cynically undermine the process and in that case uh, in, in this interview I had to employ the other strategy which is wait them out and call them out and yeah call them out wait them out just not take no for an answer. So I think that interview in the airport was probably about five minutes. I went round in a circle again and again and again because I just, at first because I wasn't quite sure what was happening, and then because I thought maybe if I just ask it slightly different way, it'll come out. And then when I realized what was really going on, um, that's when I realized the tactic had to be keep going. And we kept going and going uh, till his answers sounded in context more and more absurd and the the PR people who were standing right next to him decided that it was time to go which I said why is it time to go I don't think we've really gotten an answer here uh, to the point where we asked the final question um, and he actually had run out of phrases there was literally nothing else he could say and uh, that VP executive or that executive at the airport was quite literally speechless picking the airlines over the passengers here uh, we, we, we're very interested in the passengers' experience of the airport and making sure that they have a great experience at YVR. Isn't it a great experience getting some money back if you've been bumped? Okay, I think it's time to shut the interview down. Thank you. We're happy to follow up with the, if you have any follow-up questions. I, you very rarely see that, but that to me underscores if you go into an interview with a list of things to say and you run out and you can't, you can't uh, make that work anymore... It's over. Whereas if you go into the interview as a as somebody who is interested in having a real conversation, wants the public to understand better about what you're doing, you'll never run out of things to say. And just to be clear, YVR, if you could just explain, they do have an obligation. It's not like a, some private company deciding who gets to advertise. There's a reason that you went after YVR specifically in this case, and I just want people to be able to understand why in this case... It's, it's not quite the same as just putting up a billboard or something. Yeah, that's a really good point. I, I, we didn't go after them in any way. It was really just a simple question that we had arranged for an interview that morning. Um, but YVR, uh, yeah, if this had been a private company, I think some people would rightly say that's none of your business. Stop asking questions. And, you know, I, I'm a curious person. I don't always agree with that, but I, I definitely respect people's right to, to privacy and to say, look, I don't want to answer that. It's none of your business. Whereas the airport is a really interesting breed. It is. It used to be run by Transport Canada, federal government. Obviously, you have a right to know in the case of the government. Um, but it was devolved in the 90s to a nonprofit organization. Technically, they are uh, so-called private companies. But the exception is with the airport that in its foundational documents, they 
uh, the government put in there that it explicitly has to be operated for the benefit of the general public. And I, I found this out actually uh, as part of this uh, part of this research process. Um, the uh, the airport has a has part of the board manual says the public can ask and the airport must their words must answer questions on the following subjects and and in my reading it clearly the operation of the airport was one of those and and this is clearly to do with the operation of the airport so I felt I was well within my uh, my rights there to to expect an answer from that from their own documents. I didn't write it. I didn't make it up. It's them and, and their mission to serve the people of this city in, the, in greater Vancouver to be transparent and clear about what they're doing. And I, that, I went in with a, maybe a naive expectation that they would follow through on their own, uh, their own goals, and we didn't see that. But what's also strange about this circumstance is that they replied so quickly. It, it seemed like they wanted to be transparent and actually address your questions and your concerns that you had. So the fact that they went when they did answer those questions, they weren't the answers that you were looking for. It was answers to completely different questions. That's what's kind of baffling about this whole thing, too. But I, I think it, again, goes back to your point about a lot of agencies now, whether they're government agencies, companies, whatever, they're counting on repeating something enough times that that means that we will air it because that's what we have. Yeah. And, and that's, yeah, this isn't an accident. This isn't one bad vice president. And I, I actually don't know Scott Norris very well, but I, you know, w towards the end of the interview, you can see him trying to open up and get out of the message box because I think he knows what's going on too. And he, I don't think he liked it at, at, any more than I did. Um, there, there's a strategy where, uh, where communications officers are being hired more and more by various governments and, and, uh, and private organizations. And, and again, there's a logic to that. They have to operate their own social media accounts. They have to tell their own stories in a lot of ways. And, and the digital in, in the social media environment is very different than it, than it has been in the past. Um, but, but that can morph into something more sinister where those people are not just being the messenger for those companies, but they're also telling those companies what to say. This will play well on Twitter. Why don't you say that? And you know what? Let's forget about our foundational documents and our organization's principles, because what matters most is the retweet or the or the sly phrasing that can get us out of hot water here. And I think uh, my my worst fear is that we all learn the wrong message from this interaction. Which the, the wrong message would be: boy, we should have we should have uh, tried better to snow the reporter. We shouldn't have even given him an interview. That's I don't think that's the right message because at the end of the day, it's a simple question. The right message is know your organization's principles. Think clearly when you're making these actions. And if there's a tough decision, why don't you decide it rather than waiting for a reporter to call you on it and then have nothing to say? There are other ways of shutting us down, though, as well, and, and they've become almost codified. I, you know, I, I'm thinking, uh, oh, that's before the courts. I can't talk about it. Actually, you can talk about it. There's nothing to say that you can't, but we've heard it, uh, you know, successive governments. We keep hearing that from ministers. Well, I can't discuss it. It's before the courts. That's not a thing. That's definitely not a thing. I, uh, yeah, I've asked, I've asked several lawyers and, uh, and people in, in my time, the, the judges are the last people who want to be interfering with freedom of speech. They're actually the people who are supposed to enforce this sort of freedom of speech. So um, you, you definitely hear that line a lot. You definitely hear uh, I, often if there's an intermediary, if you're actually talking to the PR person rather than the executives, you'll, sit, you'll ask a question. You'll say, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not... 
uh, I'm not aware of that, or I haven't been given that information, which is another strategy. If you can put someone out there who actually doesn't know the answer to the question, isn't that even better than spinning a, a, trying not to say an answer you do know? So you hear that a lot. Um, and, and uh, you know, the other tactic you hear is, uh, you know, the best defense is a good offense. So if you can change the subject, if you can start smearing some other guy, you might distract the reporter and you might uh, mean you, you don't have to answer uh, uh, your own questions. I want to bring in reporter Shannon Patterson now because, Shannon, you had a very memorable example of the message box involving Andrew Wilkinson, who at the time, uh, he's a liberal leader now, but at the time he was a uh, minister, and he was the one to address a really controversial text. So sketch out the, the story for us um, leading up to this encounter that you had with him. You may remember when the foreign buyers tax was first introduced, it came as a surprise to lots of people who had bought real estate in the, the weeks leading up to the announcement who found out that when their deal closed, they would owe tens of thousands of dollars more tax than their contract had stipulated. This happened to a man who was living in Burnaby named Hamad Ahmadi. He was going to owe $54,000 more if he wanted to close the deal on his condo than he had originally thought, and he couldn't afford to pay that, and he was going to have to back out of the deal. He could be sued. I asked the Liberals for comment, and they put up Andrew Wilkinson. What would you say to Mr. Ahmadi, who signed a deal in May and is now being told he has to pay $54,000 more? Individual circumstances vary, and individuals who find themselves affected by the new property tax should seek legal advice. We tried again and again. Do you have anything to say to him at all? To get the minister to to address Hamad Ahmadi specifically. Individuals affected by the tax need to seek legal advice, and those who find themselves affected by the new tax should seek legal advice. People who are affected by the new property tax should seek legal advice. I can't tell you, Penny, how frustrating that is for me as a reporter when I'm trying to ask a question that I think our viewers would have as well about a specific person, about a a real person who was living in British Columbia legally, who was working here, who was months away from his permanent residency. What about Hamad Ahmadi? And all Andrew Wilkinson would say was this clearly predetermined message that the Liberal Party wanted him to deliver. And it was very frustrating for me. I could not get him to answer the question. And so we chose to just play that audio and let our viewers decide what they thought of this message that was being repeated over and over and over rather than answering the question. And you and I have talked about this before. It's it's part of a, a rising tide that we are fighting uh, with this message box and trying to get people to just answer something aside from the, the predetermined uh, talking points that have been drilled into them. And it just it takes away so much, I, I think, from even people, many people who are doing good work and who are working hard and maybe do need to address something, whether it's controversial or questionable. Maybe it's not. But you take away the personality. You take away it. I, I don't think it serves people well to be overly media trained either. I think that's the issue is that Andrew Wilkinson and other people we've interviewed was told this is your talking point and it's hammered into him so strongly that this is what he's supposed to say that he just repeats that answer to any question we asked. The over media training of people who are who are put up for interview subjects for us in the media is getting to the point where we can't just have a conversation with people anymore because we could ask any question under the sun and they would answer with the same answer they've been told to answer. So this was a really clear example for me of that happening. Um, I am sure Andrew Wilkinson had an opinion. 
but he clearly wasn't allowed to give an opinion or to even have a human response towards a person who was going through a terrible time in his life. And it came across as unfeeling to me for this gentleman who had done absolutely nothing wrong in you know, trying to fulfill his Canadian dream of buying a condominium being hit with a tax he had no idea was coming down the pipe. And all I was looking for, I, I was thinking maybe Andrew Wilkinson would say he felt bad for Mr. Amati, or this tax wasn't intended to hurt people like Mr. Amati. But instead, he just kept repeating that same message that had been drilled into him, seek legal counsel. And uh, that's what we put on TV. And I just want to say, I mean, there is a reason that people get media training and there is value in people who are very technical or really absorbed um, in a certain world, they're, they're in a silo. They, they're used to, uh, whether it's technical speak or having long discussions. So there is, it can be very helpful for us to have people who have been told, okay, try not to give a three-minute answer to a fairly simple question. And we often appreciate when people have had experience dealing with us, for example. Uh, but I think it's, it's just gone too far at this point to the point where it's not about being concise. It's about managing the message and about... Uh, uh, distorting, I think, just a human interaction, like you say, just having a normal conversation about an issue. Yeah, uh, it's taken the humanity out of it. It's taken the conversational aspect of what we do out of it. And I don't think, frankly, it does any favors for the people being interviewed, because as we saw with John Woodward's story at the airport, and this one as well, the interview subjects don't I don't think come across particularly well when they repeat the same message over and over. So um, I agree. Media training is great. Teach people how to, how to give a, a proper media response. But don't tell somebody exactly what they have to say and they can't Word deviate. for word. Word for word over and over and over because then they're not actually listening to the question and responding with a proper answer. Are you saying that it didn't respect the users and that the airplanes and the airlines complained? No, for us it's a, it's a business decision at the end of the day of, of the type of advertising that we uh, allow and display at the airport. So, because the layman would look... For one more question here. I, we got time for one more answer, which is what I'm waiting for. Um, the layman would look at this and say, it looks like you're taking your cues from the airlines rather than the passengers here. And it looks like you're denying passengers information that could save them money. Uh, we, we take the passenger experience at the airport very seriously. I think part of what I find frustrating about this situation, and I'm sure that you feel the same way as well, is that newsrooms are shrinking. We are doing our best uh, on tight deadlines. Those deadlines are not even what they used to be. It used to be for us 6 o'clock, and, and you, newspapers had a different deadline. Now there's this pressure to constantly put things out on Twitter, constantly produce, uh, and there's less of us doing it and trying to do a good, thorough job. And I feel like... There is a lot of there are a lot of resources out there, and a lot of agencies and uh, government bodies and, and companies are able to out resource us. And I do worry that repetitive responses, email responses, without anybody being able to actually answer questions, are rapidly becoming the norm. And it does undermine our democracy and people's right to be able to get answers to the questions that we are trying to ask on their behalf. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really good point because if you look at the sort of the lowest. Uh, cost journalism that you could ever do would be looking at a tweet from an organization or a person and copying it into your story, retweeting it essentially. And when you think about the strategy that we're talking about, which is only give out a certain number of phrases, ignore questions and only only uh, repeat those phrases to any questions, that is what Twitter is. 
you want to put a statement out, Twitter will put it out for you. And if you want to ask a question, well, I guess you could comment, you could reply, you could, you know, there, there's not a lot of things you can do to pierce that veil. And so in order to, to, to get to the next level, you need a, a, an interview which involves a sit-down which has this back and forth that can reveal the person to either be someone who's intent on repeating those phrases in order to get a message across and undermine the process or someone who's really interested in answering your questions. And I think to get from, yeah, from that tweet to a proper understanding, you need to have the resources to sit down in front of somebody and better in person. Uh, and that's something we do here. We make a real um, point about doing it because you know, if it's on tweet it's, or on the phone, it's very hard to put on camera. And, and ultimately, at the end of the day, we're a TV station. That is the kind of thing that thrives on personal interactions uh, and um, honest exchanges. So I, I want people to learn the lesson that this is not about let's figure out ways to make the message box smarter and defeat, deceive the reporter better. It really it should just be about let's have a frank discussion of something and uh, at the end of the day, let the process work. Let the objective reporter, you know, put his story out there, and uh, you know, and 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 just be part of this free exchange of ideas that I think really is is part of what our democracy is based on. Thank you so much for being on this episode of BTS with CTV. Thanks very much for having me. I also want to thank Adam Lee for his support with Archival Audio this week. And thank you for joining us on BTS with CTV. Is there a topic you'd like us to cover on a future podcast? Email me at bts at ctv.ca. And if you like what you heard, please subscribe for more insights, tidbits, and the stories behind the stories. I'm Penny Daflos. 